Hi, my name is Caitlin Antrim, and today is a chance to prove that I am not a single-issue law of the sea person. Um, after reading all the newspaper stories in, 1997, or in 2007, after the Russian flag was planted at the North Pole, you might be excused for thinking that the United States really had not given the Arctic much thought in terms of security policy. That would be a, a tremendous error. Since World War II and the supply of the Eastern Front by way of Murmansk and the Cold War with the construction of the Dew Line in northern Alaska and Canada, through the creation of the Arctic Council and onto the recently released uh, U.S. Arctic policy, the Arctic has played a role in national security policy, but often behind the scenes. Um, I'd like to note one particular point, and with a bit of pride. In, it was 30 years ago this summer that Ambassador Elliot Richardson, speaking at the Law of the Sea Conference, noted that the convention would give the United States complete control over the resources of the Chukchi Plateau, regardless of distance from shore. In fact, exploration is showing that that may extend beyond 600 miles from shore, far greater than we ever thought we would have control uh, before we began those negotiations. Uh, that is that division of the seabed, including the Arctic, is the largest division of unclaimed territory since the Pope divided the New World five centuries ago. And it's being done peacefully. Rather than fighting with ships and bombers, we're fighting with lawyers and geologists. And all in all, I'm more than happy to have them on the front lines. Um, past is prologue, so we have an opportunity now with our panel of experts to look at where we stand now in the Arctic and, and how it affects security policy, where we, we should be looking to go, and hopefully some advice on how to get there. Uh, our panel includes Amanda Dory, who's Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy in the Office of the Undersecretary for Policy. Uh, she brings a, a great experience in terms of developing defense policy, uh, to address U.S. interest, but she also brings experience from working outside of the government here at CSIS, at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the World Bank. Uh, our second panelist, uh, Dana Goward, comes from the Coast Guard, and let me see if I get this right, the Office of Assessment, Integration, and Risk Management. Uh, he brings responsibilities for all of the maritime security interests that that are covered by the Coast Guard, a very wide range of security interests, and is involved in both departmental policy and interagency ocean policy. He also brings his experience in the Coast Guard as a pilot um, involved in enforcement of uh, U.S. maritime laws and regulations. Our third panelist, uh, Stephen Carmel, br brings a different perspective. He's Senior Vice President for Maritime Services of the Maersk Line, um, he's also an advisor uh, to the Navy on uh, maritime shipping interests. And he, too, brings an outside interest. Uh, he's, he went to the Merchant Marine Academy and served as a, uh, a Merchant Marine officer. And finally, last but not, certainly not least, the person you've heard about in the first panel, Lawson Brigham, distinguished professor of geography and Arctic policy at the University of Alaska. He was director of the Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment, uh, and co-editor of the wonderful report that, if you're lucky, you can talk the State Department into giving you a copy. Uh, and, and 
from my perspective, uh, one of the important things that he's done is he was captain of one of the Polar-class icebreakers, the largest in the U.S. fleet, and he has been an observer on the Russian nuclear icebreakers, and he served as a uh, marine policy fellow at the Marine Policy Center uh, at Woods Hole Oceanographic and produced a book uh, called The Soviet Maritime Arctic, which for those of you who want to work on the Arctic, I recommend as, as one of the great resources. The Arctic, the Arctic is a, a place to traverse, hasn't changed that much other than a bit reduced ice, and this book is, is the best resource I've found. So with those introductions, I'd like to turn it over to Amanda Dory and uh, get started. Good morning. Can you hear me okay in the back? Good. Thank you. Uh, good morning, and thank you, Caitlin, for the introduction and to CSIS for bringing together this event today to look at the Arctic from all different dimensions. You might be wondering what the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy does on a day-to-day on -day basis, and the, the two big components of the job are, are strategic articulations and looking out into the future and attempting to discern what that future security environment will look like and what the department might be called upon to do and how it should posture itself uh, and what capabilities and capacities are, are needed. So, so my office spends a lot of time looking out in, in the future. We've just come to the conclusion of a major strategic articulation point, which for us is called the Quadrennial Defense Review. Some of you may have, have heard of this. It's a report to Congress that we do every four years where we articulate what our defense strategy is, what our force structure needs are, and then capabilities and capacities associated with those. So what I'm proposing to do this morning is to, to basically look at the Arctic through the lens of the Quadrennial Defense Review, which was delivered to Congress at the beginning of February. We've spent a fair amount of time uh, reaching out to different audiences to talk to them about what, what the defense strategy is in general and then to look at particular particular issues and themes, and that's what I'm proposing to do today. So it's, it's going to take, take you up a little bit probably from where you were at the first panel, but hopefully in, in a useful way. Uh, just to give you a quick flavor of, of what the defense strategy says, we, ha we have four strategic imperatives, and, and they turn out to be four Ps to try to make it uh, alliterative and, and possibly easy to remember. The first of those P's is prevailing in today's conflicts, and that is the top priority. And Secretary Gates has been very clear that as we, as we make risk trade-offs across, across priorities, that prevailing today is, is the top priority for the department. Uh, the second P is, is prevention and deterrence as a fundamental pillar of our strategy. Third, we're preparing for a much wider range of challenges than, than we have done in the past, and we do that through a lot of different types of activities, whether that's trend scanning or the future security environment or scenario work, but really understanding that, that conflict is changing and that our role will change with that. And then the final P is, is preserving and enhancing our all-volunteer force, and this is the first quadrennial defense review where, where the, the people part of the equation is really treated as a strategic priority. The Arctic really comes up with the, with the third P, preparing for, for a complex future and a broad range of, of challenges. I'll get into that further. As far as the future security environment is concerned, we begin by looking at today, and, and we look at the conflicts that we're in today not as, as an aberration. I think that's, that's a change um, in the thinking within the department. If you went back 10 years 
and, and looked at what we were thinking at that time, we would look at the types of conflicts that we're involved in uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq as, as, as aberrations, not as how conflict would look in the future, and we're, we no longer feel that way. We think that they're harbingers of a, a complex future and a dynamic future landscape. We see the rise of new powers, a growing influence of non-state actors, the spread of weapons of mass destruction, and a series of global trends that I'll get into just very quickly that, that give us profound challenges in our international security order. The global strategic trends that are of concern to us, first, forms of warfare are increasingly difficult to categorize. You no longer have a conventional spectrum. You now see adversaries that are employing more innovative methods to offset United States traditional strengths. And these can include populations, they can include proxy forces, uh, cyber attacks, other forms of coercion or anti-access capabilities, and new operational concepts. So, so the, the warfare conflict itself we, we view as, as dynamic and changing. One particular area, and this is where it begins to intersect more directly with, with the Arctic, is in the area of the global commons. And we believe that the global commons, and by commons we're referring to, to air, maritime, cyber, and space domains in which all benefit and, and none own, and the United States has played a very prominent role over the years in, in preserving the global commons. And the trends that we observe is that the global con commons are increasingly um, and under uh, are being encroached upon from from various quarters, whether it's piracy in the maritime domain, whether it's anti-satellite tests in the space domain, whether it's cyber attacks in the cyber domain. You, you can see areas where where the use of the global commons is being denied in in part, and it's of concern to the department. Another concerning trend to us is growing challenges to our power projection capabilities, which has really been the the backbone of, of U.S. strength for so long. And last and certainly not least, the, the trend of weak states uh, continuing and to include the impacts of things like, like climate change on already weakened governments and what that may pretend as far as, as asymmetric conflicts and the growth of terrorism. Coming back to the commons theme in particular, the QDR made a number of references to the Arctic, and, and if you read it, and it's online if you haven't already read it before, you, you see how we talk about it as an area for collaboration and cooperation when we're talking about Canada, when we're talking about Europe, when we're talking about Russia, the other Arctic powers. But the primary focus was really in the section that talked about the global commons. And as the Arctic becomes more and more accessible in the decades ahead, it, like the other oceans, plays an increasingly important role in the vital web of global commerce and communication that benefits us all. So not surprising and consistent with the first morning's panel, accession to the UNCLOS is, is a priority and it's something that the department has spoken to on multiple occasions before and again affirms in this QDR DOD support for quick accession to UNCLOS. Uh, on the issue of posture, and this was one of the themes within this panel, the, the QDR dealt with global posture and, and articulated a um, shift in our thinking about posture. And by posture, that, that's really a reference to uh, where the department has forces or installations or capabilities located around the world, as well as cooperative arrangements for, for access. Within the Arctic, we viewed the Arctic as lacking the kind of infrastructure 
that supports human activity the way most other regions do. But as the Arctic becomes more accessible and human activity increases, along with all of the other Arctic nations, we'll have to evaluate the need to increase supporting infrastructure, deep water ports, for example, or airfields, but in a way that takes due regard of the fragile environment and the concerns of the indigenous peoples in the Arctic. As far as scientific assessments are concerned, the Department works closely with the Coast Guard and Department of Homeland Security, as well as other nations, in improving Arctic forecasting. Within the U.S. government, interagency collaboration is already well underway, getting back to your point as far as th th there's a lot that's happening maybe below the below the, the surface, so to speak, if we want to have an iceberg metaphor this morning. Um, the National Ice Center, for example, is the kind of effort that is required to facilitate safe operations in the Arctic, and then internationally the work of the Arctic Council that is so important. In terms of capabilities and capacity, you, you don't see much of a treatment in, in this QDR as far as projections for Arctic capabilities and capacity. This, this, this is a slow uh, journey of exploration in a sense, and you'll hear more from my Coast Guard partner, and this is something that the Coast Guard and the Navy and the Air Force are looking at and starting to, to form projections of what types of capabilities and capacities will be needed in the future. But what we can see now is that improved polar communications and weather and ice data collection are really at the top of the priority list in, in the near term. I, we're encouraged by the, the Arctic Council's work on a search and, and rescue memorandum of understanding, looking at that as an important first step. And we encourage this and other collaborative efforts that are underway under the auspices of the Arctic Council. One of the things that will also no doubt come up today and, and came up in the conduct of our quadrennial defense review is the issue of, of scenario-based planning, and it's something that the, the department believe strongly in as a useful tool to project a range of potential futures. Uh, we look at scenario-based planning as a way to look at long-term impacts of a range of choices and different development paths, and I think most in this group are familiar with the work that the Arctic Council has done with the Global Business Network and their scenario-based assessment of, of the future Arctic environment. We've done some similar work inside the department as well in our findings support the same conclusions that in the near term, improve search and rescue capabilities, enhance communication and forecasting, and emphasis on environmental protection are at the, at the top of the list. To quickly conclude, since you gave us five minutes, I would just say that there are so many opportunities for collaboration uh, among the U.S. government agencies and with international partners. The, the title of the panel referred to uh, coherence or, or chaos, and I think the reality is a little bit of both. I think it, part of it is depending on where you sit. But certainly we, we have the coherence at this point that's provided by, by our Arctic policy in the form of National Security Presidential Directive 66 and the corresponding homeland number HSPD at 25. But that, that really gives the coherence within the U.S. government affirmed in this Obama administration. And what, what may seem like the, the chaotic aspects of it are, are really all of the different departments and agencies reaching out to, to one another as well as to the, the many external partners and communities that are involved in, in furthering that type of implementation. So I think it would be fair to say that, that we've, we've got coherence. We can certainly aspire to more. Uh, it's probably not as chaotic as, as, as it may look. You know, there's, there's a purpose to it. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you.
How's that? Very good. So just building on uh, what Amanda said uh, in, in terms of uh, if it ever does come to armed conflict in the, uh, in the Arctic that uh, we will, uh, will prevail, uh, but more importantly what we heard earlier today is that there's very little uh, possibility for us going to war in the Arctic, which I think I join all of you in, in uh, agreeing that that's a, that's a really good thing. But I will offer to you, and it's my, my job to offer to you, that uh, <clears throat> actually uh, compared to waging the peace in, in the Arctic, waging the war would be a relatively simple matter. Uh, really, the peace uh, is going to be much more uh, complex and difficult. Uh, it involves a wide range of activities, which uh, we in the U.S. Coast Guard are involved with, uh, uh, from uh, preventing uh, oil rigs from uh, blowing up and catching fire, and uh, when they do blow up and catch fire, dealing with the consequences. Uh, to uh, things like facilitating commerce. This is a picture of the Red Dog Mine, the, uh, the world's largest sink mine that happens to be in Alaska that uh, conducts operations year-round, but which is looking to go, uh, although they're only able to ship out seasonally, they're looking to be uh, able to ship out seasonally as well. Uh, and in fact, uh, without going into a whole lot of detail, this is one of uh, Meade's, one could say that uh, there's a whole range of very complicated uh, peacetime activities that are going on in the Arctic right now that need to uh, have uh, coherence uh, brought to them out of what is uh, getting to be a very uh, chaotic picture. And this is uh, true not only internationally, but certainly it's beginning to be true within the uh, U.S. exclusive economic zone and the territorial seas as well. There are other activities, other things going on that uh, we in the Department of Homeland Security are beginning to have to deal with. Uh, the fact that the uh, ice is going away and uh, that the, uh, the water and the uh, very heavy storms that we experience in the Arctic, uh, the, the wind can blow all the way around the globe uh, in the Arctic, by the way, so the storms tend to be much more severe there than they are in other places. Uh, they're beginning to erode the coastline, and uh, unfortunately there are a lot of toxic dumps that have been built right along the coastline, and so even in the absence of uh, oil drilling and any other kind of petrochemical activity, uh, we're beginning to see some significant uh, pollution threats uh, as well, not to mention the impact on habitation and uh, the folks up there that uh, the American citizens up there who, uh, because of the changes in their environment, the changes in, in nature, uh, really are having their way of life threatened. Uh, we had a visit from one of the, uh, uh, the officials in the, in the area who told us that uh, the elders no longer know how to hunt. Uh, they don't know how to get their food because the patterns of activity of all of the animals that they depend upon has uh, changed completely. Um, so uh, in addition to that, uh, you know that the Arctic uh, is uh, uh, truly open. You know that an area is truly open when the tourists start to arrive. And so uh, we're beginning to see tourists as well. And uh, again, from a prevention, resiliency, and a reliability point of view, uh, it's a significant responsibility for us in the Department of Homeland Security uh, and the Coast Guard. Uh, and, in fact, uh, we've even gone to the, the next level of activity down in terms of, uh, of uh, Americans uh, exercising their uh, rights to risk their lives and uh, engage in dangerous activities and, and uh, possibly kill themselves with, uh, year by year, every, every season, more and more people uh, sailing their own modified uh, vessels up through the Arctic and what uh, we're calling euphemistically adventure uh, transits. But if there's a, if, in order to exercise, uh, in order to exercise our sovereign rights and sovereign responsibilities as an Arctic nation, as was pointed out before, and I would offer, in order to uh, ensure that it doesn't come to armed conflict, we're going to need the ability to access the uh, 
uh, access the Arctic uh, on the surface. Uh, the Department of Defense has no trouble accessing it beneath the surface. They have no trouble accessing it on, uh, uh, in the air. Uh, but for uh, long-term sustainability, for long-term presence, the kind of um, uh, deterrence, uh, prevention, uh, sovereignty activity that, uh, that we really need, uh, we need the ability to access the, uh, the Arctic on the surface. And, and as you can see uh, from this graphic here, uh, we're not quite where we should be, at least in many folks' opinions, in terms of our ability to do that. We have, uh, as was mentioned earlier, uh, three polar icebreakers. One of them is um, in a uh, commission special status. We're going through a multi-year process, uh, thanks to uh, appropriation received from Congress, to bring her out. Uh, but still in all, when we ha even when we have a full complement of three, I hesitate to call it a fleet, uh, but we have a full complement of three icebreakers, uh, we are still going to be at a, uh, a comparative disadvantage relative to many of the other Arctic nations. And again, depending upon uh, whether you're a, uh, a foreign policy hawk like uh, Scott Borgeson or, or you're just interested in conducting routine uh, U.S government business in the Arctic, making sure that people are doing what they should and behaving themselves, uh, we're going to need the ability to have some sort of permanent presence up there. And with only three icebreakers, I, it's, it's going to be a significant challenge. I will also add uh, that, uh, interestingly, uh, the funding basis for operation and maintenance of the icebreakers lies with the National Science Foundation. So uh, while we're still trying to bring coherence and uh, uh, to our effort, our, our national concerns, certainly with reference to the icebreakers at this point, still are very much science-focused as opposed to the broad spectrum of, uh, of U.S. possible interest there. Uh, and finally, uh, to wind up, uh, I think one of our greatest joint concerns about the Arctic, as it, uh, as it is in many areas of new national endeavor, uh, is that uh, that we get ahead of the uh, of the program, that we think about this in advance, and I think that we've done very very well with the uh, with the national policy, uh, with moving it forward. Uh, but um, I'm not sure, as the title of our uh, of our panel indicates, that we're actually there yet, um, because uh, all too frequently, uh, when something new, uh, when there's a new policy issue or there's a new um, uh, there's a new challenge uh, to any nation, but. It, I mean, perhaps it's just, uh, it, it just seems to us or seems to me because uh, we're here in the United States, it's particularly germane to the U.S. Uh, we, we talk about it, we discuss it, but uh, it really takes uh, uh, something significant uh, to happen before uh, we really take it seriously as a, as a serious threat. And, uh, and of course, uh, uh, it, took the, uh, it took the Exxon Valdez for us to get uh, the Oil Pollution Act of uh, 1990. It took... Uh, uh, any number of bad things happening before we're really galvanized in a, in a maritime environment to, uh, uh, to take proactive steps as a nation and, and do what we should have uh, uh, thought about doing all along. Uh, I hope that we don't have to uh, wait for that before, uh, uh, before we are a little bit more proactive and, and forward-leaning on the Arctic, but it may well be that, uh, that that is the case. Because sooner or later, something bad will happen. On that cheery note, I will leave the rest for the discussion <laughs> and yield to... Uh, my, my uh, colleague from to the left. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Um, being the business guy, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the practicalities of, uh, of all this and how policy impacts us, um, uh, you know, in terms of actually doing what a lot of people say is going to happen up there. So in terms of, of overall, the, the broad end of the loose ends that still have to be wrapped up uh, before uh, uh, we're doing a heck of a lot of shipping up there, 
Um, polar class rules, the, the classification societies that define how we build ships have only recently harmonized uh, their rules. Uh, there isn't anything floating around out there yet that's actually been built to those rules. Uh, I've just gone through the exercise of trying to to figure out how uh, a tanker built to Baltic class rules will will comply and conform to polar class rules, and it is not easy. So there's a lot of of, uh, of issues surrounding uh, construction rules, when the polar class rules will be enforced and how they'll be enforced uh, still has to be sorted out. Uh, some of this is, is evident in, in Canada's struggle right now, um, trying to come up with a hybrid system for in, in their pollution prevention regulations um, uh, and, and that sort of thing. The IMO guidelines for operating in polar regions is still voluntary. Uh, anything I've seen indicates it won't be mandatory before 2011. Uh, in terms of, and, and all of these things depend on qualified <laughs> ice navigators. Uh, again, IMO has recently uh, published what they think would be a good uh, definition of what the training and experience on ice navigator would have. That still has to be adopted and become final, and then flag states have to convert that into <laughs> rules and certification processes and that sort of stuff. So we're probably a long way from seeing any standardization of, of who is qualified to drive around up there. Uh, right now, it's, it's pretty much anybody. Um, how the Arctic will be treated under MARPOL uh, is still a question. Um, and and uh, assuming it ends up being treated as a special area, um, uh, that raises a host of infrastructure issues. If you have ships going into ports up there, they're going to need the sorts of, of infrastructure for pumping off dirty slops and, and sewage and getting rid of trash and how that stuff's going to be handled in the Arctic. I'm not really sure. No one's explained that to me yet. And, and then, of course, what kind of fuel we're going to be allowed to burn up there uh, is still an open question, as, as most of you probably know. Uh, IMO <coughs> is mandating that south of 60 South, we are not allowed to burn the types of heavy oil we normally burn. Uh, we have to burn a, a, a special type of diesel. Um, I understand our Norwegians have recently or are planning to submit to IMO uh, a similar uh, rule. If that gets adopted up there, then we'll have to do the same thing up there. Um, so there's a lot of things overall uh, that are still far from certain in terms of the practicalities of, of working up there. And, and so now I want to talk a little bit specifically about the Northwest Passage and the Northern Sea Route. Uh, first, the Northwest Passage. Um, uh, navigation in that area uh, is, is very difficult. Uh, hydrography, bathymetry, and cartography are sadly lacking. Decent charts really don't exist. Aids to navigation don't exist. Emergency response capability does not exist. Um, so there's a lot of things that need to be uh, done before you can really support shipping in a significant way up there. Um, you've heard Dana talk about icebreakers. Obviously, uh, we are in a sad state for a polar, uh, a polar uh, nation. My view is, is uh, what Senator Markowski has done uh, gives the Coast Guard about 10 years on existing assets. Uh, compare that to the political and then procurement and then construction process, construction in, in sadly inadequate U.S. yards. Uh, if someone said, let's build icebreakers right now, it would probably be 10 years before we could put the first one in the water. Um, so, so the money that the Coast Guard has now, you know, my estimate is that might bring Coast Guard existing icebreakers out to when new ones could be ready if we started right now, and I don't see that happening. So... All it's, it's done is, is bought some time but hasn't solved the problem. And, and at some point, 
uh, we're going to be faced with the fact that the old icebreakers aren't going to be there and the new ones aren't going to be ready. Um, then there's the, the question of what types of shipping will go through the Northwest Passage. And there's two types, destination shipping and, and um, transit shipping. Uh, destination shipping is shipping going up there for a specific reason, uh, you know, leaving out uh, Danish suicidal uh, sailboats. It, it's, it's shipping that's going up there for something, industrial activity uh, in, 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 along the North, Amer um, North American Arctic coast. Uh, I, I think mostly west of the Canadian archipelago. Um, uh, that sort of shipping is happening now. It's probably going to increase, um, but isn't going to be huge amounts. And then we have transit shipping, uh, you know, the, the, the so-called pathway of globalization, ships going from one place to another and shortcutting across, across the, the Northwest Passage. And that's probably never going to happen in the, in the Northwest Passage. The Northwest Passage will never really become a pathway of globalization. There's about a bazillion reasons that, can, that coalesce into the, uh, into the fact that in the Northwest Passage, shorter is neither faster nor cheaper. And we can talk about that later if you want. Um, it's also important to remember that the Northwest Passage is only actually applicable to one trade route, uh, which is Asia to the east coast of North America. Um, and that trade route, it's usually in the, in the literature, almost everywhere it's compared to the Panama Canal. Uh, but in point of fact, uh, the real comparison should be being done to railroads because that's what the real competition is, not the Panama Canal. Land bridge service from places like Prince Rupert in L.A. and Tacoma is extremely efficient and very fast, and the Northwest Passage will never compete with it. Um, next, we have the Northeast Passage or the, or the Northern Sea Route. Uh, the Russians have been doing this for 120 years. Uh, they're very good at it. Uh, uh, the Soviet times stressed development of the Arctic as, as a strategic priority for them. Um, so destination shipping in particular in the Northern Sea Route has been very active. In fact, I think it actually peaked in 87 and then has fallen off with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But that's, it's, that's coming back. Uh, Putin has identified that as, as a serious uh, national priority. I, um, I've seen an announcement where, where the Russians intend to start shipping oil from Verunde uh, across the Northern Sea Route to Japan um, this summer. So, so there is some of that starting to come. If uh, the Northern Sea Route also, by the way, it's, it's deeper, it doesn't have the same challenges that the Northwest Passage has, all that stuff the Northwest Passage needs, Northern Sea Route has because the Russians have been using it so long. So it is possible under certain scenarios uh, you could see the Northern Sea Route uh, end up being a pathway of globalization way down in the future, but possible, I would stress. We should be careful what we ask for there. Um, any large-scale diversion of traffic north across the northern sea route necessarily takes income away from Egypt, and uh, which becomes a stability issue in the Middle East. And so while I agree that we will unlikely never – it will be unlikely we will ever see a, a war in the Arctic, uh, it is possible we could see a war because of the Arctic someplace else in the world. Um, but uh, all that said uh, – uh, that is a long way off. Right now, destination shipping is the only reasonable shipping that's going to happen through the Arctic uh, for a long time. Uh, so shipping companies like us uh, that do globalized shipping, uh, this is not an issue for us. We're not investing a lot of time and energy in it beyond keeping track of what's going on and making sure we're prepared to move there when we need to. Uh, um, shipping up there will remain destination shipping, specialty shipping, uh, the belugas of the world, and, and uh, we are unlikely to see the Arctic uh, become a major pathway for globalization.
Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, I, I guess uh, the previous speakers did leave a little bit of a window for me to to be controversial is what Heather told me, so I'll, I'll do that at the end. Uh, you, you saw the, the image that Mead put up there of the uh, Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment, and the, the red, red band at the top is the most important operative phrase because it says a negotiated document of the Arctic Council. So it actually the eight Arctic states agreed to the recommendations and all the text of that report. is only a single report. You can read it all. It's all in one document, and I think that's significant uh, output of the, of the Arctic Council, and it is negotiated. It is the word of the Arctic states essentially to the world that uh, the Arctic states care immensely about protecting the, the place and the people in, in the Arctic. Let me have a slight departure, Caitlin, for, for a couple minutes here and talk a little bit about the United States' disengagement in the world because I think uh, there, there's some commentary and some things written in this town and also around the world that the United States doesn't do enough or isn't engaged enough in, in the Arctic. And, and as I was flying down here from Alaska yesterday, I wrote down a few bullets. And in the Arctic Council, I, I, it could be argued that the United States is the mo most influential and proactive member, uh, despite whether we have an ambassador or not. Uh, all of the large assessments of the Arctic Council, led by Americans, all of those assessments... The major funder was the United States, NSF for the Arctic Climate Impact Assessment, uh, MMS, and Norwegian Interest for the, for the Oil and Gas Assessment. And for the Shipping Assessment, it was State Department and uh, Arctic Research Commission, NOAA, and Canadian Interests, actually, that supported uh, uh, Canadian agencies that supported it. But again, the primary funder and proactive member is the United States. So I think in the Arctic Council now, we're, we're leading State Department and Coast Guard, with Russian colleagues leading this effort as a task force. So I, I would argue differently that many, that the United States is the proactive member, and then maybe other, other states, it would be a little controversial, might maybe pony up some money. Uh, although when I say that, I, I do note that NOAA is a huge supporter of, of the Arctic Council in terms of AMAP and all the science-driven work and policy work of the Arctic Council. So I wouldn't dismiss that Norway is not a major player at the, at the table. Maybe some of the other partners could pony up a little bit more. As far as science investment, the United States, of course, is the largest science investor, both ends of the planet. We could calculate the numbers, but it's probably twice all of the other countries on the planet when you add it up in South Pole Station and all the rest of it. But every year we spend four or five hundred million dollars on Arctic research, and it could be argued how, how you calculate that, and I would say that's probably a conservative figure. But nonetheless, we're the largest science funder on the planet in, in the Arctic, have been for many decades. So we, we spend a lot of money, we influence science policy, and I think that's a measure of our influence around the, the polar world. In, in fact, just a, a snippet here, we have a North Pole Observatory. Had it for a decade. You don't see it. It's under the water. It's a long stream of cable, and it's an observing system. We don't think that data goes into security systems and databases, so we know the oceanographic conditions. Of course it does. So we have that. It's for science and climate change, but it has utility for, for others. So I don't see anybody else at the North Pole having an observer because we have an observatory station at the South Pole also. Uh, me, Trello, and myself, and John Farrell, we drove up the hill a couple of years ago in uh, – in Svalbard, Svalbard at Langevin, and, and there's a big, all the satellite dishes are there. Well, the connection between the beach and Svalbard, that fiber optic cable was paid for by 
NASA, when NASA had some largesse and extra money to spend. <laughs> so there's an influence. Of course, what we, I think the three of us, were a little disturbed at on the sign going up the hill, there's no mention of the United States involvement or NASA, so we're not, we're not on the, the sign that goes up the hill, so that was a little disturbing. But nonetheless, there you can see some influence. We have a new Arctic research vessel, Sekuliak. It's a $123 million vessel. Steel's being cut. Steel's not being cut on the, the, the Canadian um, uh, offshore patrol boats yet. So we have another in science investment. And then for Arctic policies, we heard about them all today, but when you sum them up, our new Arctic policy, the Navy's Arctic Roundup, and both of those policies, I, I think the significant part of it, besides the words, are all transparent to the world. I, I thought the, Navy, uh, the, the Navy's roadmap, uh, having gone out to the world, is, is quite a significant uh, feat in itself. So everybody could read what we say. They might not agree with our positions on the Northern Sea Route and the Northwest Passage. But nonetheless, the roadmap is out there for everyone to see and to, in a, in a way, shape uh, policies. Fisheries closure, legislations on ports, and, and, and so-and-so. And then finally, uh, every other year, used to be a yearly, the United States has an ISEX. In, uh, in March of last year, the USS Annapolis and the USS uh, Helen's uh, we're up there operating in, quote, the Central Arctic Ocean. So I think from a security perspective and a, and a training and expertise perspective, I don't know who else is up there. Brits are our Russian colleagues. But nonetheless, we're up there exercising. We have fewer submarines than we had in the past. But nonetheless, we have capability. So I'll just that summary tells me that at least science policy, Arctic policy perspectives, we, we do have some influence around the world, and I, I actually think we're doing – for our share. Let me get to the more specific issues, I think, of, of security. That, that was maybe the positive part. Now maybe I come to a bit more of the challenges. I, I would say when we, when we orchestrated the, the Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment, we clearly found in our scenarios work that it's globalization around the world, globalization of the Arctic and its connectedness economically to the rest of the planet. When you have the largest zinc mine, as, as Dana said, in, in Alaska, the largest nickel mine is in Russia, Potentially the largest high-grade uh, iron ore mine is in Baffin Island. And then you have all the oil and gas exploration around the world. It's economics. Climate change gets to play. I'm a climate change scientist. But I would argue it's a global economics driving the marine system and the marine, uh, marine uh, operations in the Arctic today and, and in the future. Uh, three quick points, and I'll, I'll finish. Uh, they, they deal with maritime infrastructure in the United States Arctic, uh, surveillance and monitoring in, in our region of, of the planet, and then some points about high-latitude maritime response and presence. For maritime in infrastructure in the United States Arctic, uh, not much can be said other than uh, it's woeful at best and, and maybe the words are non-existent at worst. So, so we don't have any infrastructure in, in the United States Arctic. Uh, inadequate, the long list, Dana mentioned some, and, and, and Steve did also, comms, SAR, environmental response, ports, hydrography and charting. For the whole of the Arctic Ocean, we, we found in the AMSA that only 8% of it's charted to international standards, yet we have a fair share of the large cruise ship industry around the coast of Greenland operating without uh, adequate charts, but that, that's another subject. But for the United States Arctic, hydrography and charting, lack of salvage, no ocean observing system, people working on these things for MET, oceanographic and ice data, so, so I would argue that this is a security 
liability, not having this type of infrastructure, particularly in terms of marine safety, environmental protection, but maybe, maybe beyond. We don't really have the knowledge of our operating environment, not only for the Navy, but for the Coast Guard and other MMS, Fish and Wildlife, et cetera. And I, I don't think without this infrastructure, as an Arctic state, we meet our uh, responsibilities in federal code, but also our responsibilities as an Arctic state. But we're not alone on this except for the coast of Norway and in some portions of northwest Russia. The whole of the Arctic is devoid and deficient in, in all of what uh, Steve mentioned just, just previously. On surveillance and monitoring in the United States Arctic, we, we are making some progress. An industry group, uh, the Alaska Marine Exchange, is putting up AIS, uh, automatic ID system for tra tracking ships around the Alaskan Arctic. So some progress is being made. Coast Guard has a C-130 flights. Um, and, and, and they're gaining experience, and maybe this is an area for new technologies like unmanned aircraft in the, in the U.S. Arctic. Uh, the, the eight states in AMSA did call for an Arctic marine traffic awareness system, uh, and those words really taken from the Coast Guard um, partners who, who played in the AMSA. And, and what we really mean is an mon effective monitoring and tracking system, and what it really requires is seamless and integrated passing of information, ship information, between the Arctic states. And, of course, in Bering Strait and the United States Arctic, we need that transfer of information from Russia and from Canada and back and forth as, as the strait is used as a navigation waterway in a national strait. And then, finally, this, this question of icebreakers and what I would call high-latitude maritime response and presence, uh, both coastal and deep water. We hear a lot about icebreakers, but most of the assets... Uh, that we might need in the United States are, are shallow draft, and, and uh, today the United States has no assets that can operate in partially or totally ice-covered waters around the coast of Alaska, and it's ice-covered. Uh, amazingly enough, Alaska, we purchased Alaska from uh, Russia in 1867, and from that period into the early part of the 20th century, the ships we had then, named the Corwin, the Bear, and others, operated by the predecessor of the Coast Guard, the Revenue Cutter Service. Actually, you see pictures in the ice. Now, they're not icebreakers in the, in the terms today, but the United States has less capability today in the, in the maritime coastal area, ice-covered areas, than they did at the end of the, the uh, 19th century. Remarkable, isn't it? Uh, and then that's on the coastal area. So the answer to it is you have buoy tenders, you have smaller ships like the Canadian Coast Guard has that can operate, enforce regulations, respond to spills, or whatever, they have to be ice-capable. The question of polar icebreakers is a, is a very difficult one for the United States. It's difficult only in terms of, of money and funding them. It's, it's quite clear we need X number. I, I'm not sure I would agree with the plot that uh, Dana put up there. My, my, when I see that, I, I, I say, well, I don't know, we have 12 uh, carrier groups. So it's not a numbers game, but the number isn't zero for polar icebreakers. The question is, what, what are our interests? Today, the strategy of the United States is to outsource our interest, maritime interests, to Sweden, Russia, in some sense Canada, and have those countries, icebreakers, actually carry out some of the missions of the United States. Kind of an intriguing strategy. Uh, OMB and NSF are involved in this strategy. I'm not sure they call it a strategy. It's a budget strategy. Not an operational, tactical, strategic strategy, obviously, but that, that's the issue. This issue of where 
the United States budget should be put for icebreakers, it's quite clear, I think, to most of us, the National Science Foundation is one of the world's leading science organizations, not marine transport, not marine enforcement agencies. Get the budget out of NSF, put it in the Coast Guard, and then force the Coast Guard and put the heat on the Coast Guard to continue its historic role of operating these polar ships. So I think there's, there's a lot to be done in the U.S. Arctic. I think it's related to environmental security. It's related to uh, energy security and not necessarily directly to military security. It's more related to uh, law enforcement. Uh, thank you. Well, we've had four good presentations. I think they, they actually link together pretty well. And uh, we have about a half an hour for questions. And uh, we have two microphones around the room. So please hold up your hands so the uh, people with the microphones can find you. And we'll take questions for the panel. Thank you. Uh, Rob Hubert, University of Calgary. I've got a question for Amanda and a second question for Dana and Lawson. Um, Amanda, one of the issues on U.S. security policy always seems to be sort of focused on cooperation. We saw it in the, in the Bush Arctic policy. We see it starting off at the Arctic Roadmap. And yet if we look closely, we see a whole series of decisions that don't look, at least from, uh, from outside of the United States, do not look that, that particularly cooperative. I mean, you have the deployment of what's now going to be a much smaller fleet of F-22s where you have 20% of them uh, being stationed up in uh, Alaska, where the Virginia class, which was said to be non-Arctic capable, suddenly the USS Texas uh, shows up in Arctic waters last year. Um, the issue of uh, U.S. response to the Russian um, uh, overflights in, in the Arctic. So there's, and, and I mean, Northern Edge, too, with 10,000 troops. There just seems to be a, a, a certain buildup of military capabilities. I mean, one could also extend that to Fort Greeley with the ABM, active ABM system. I'm just wondering, can you comment a little bit on just sort of this, this what would be seen at least outside, a non-cooperative side of American security policy? Uh, for Lawson and Dana, uh, the question I have is, going back once again on this theme of cooperation, uh, the Polar Code came so close to being, to being um, uh, made into an international treaty at the end of the 1990s. I know U.S. Coast Guard was heavily involved with that negotiations. I'm wondering, can you explain a little bit what happened to that? My understanding was that we came a hair's breadth to having an international Arctic treaty on maritime shipping, and I'm just wondering, what happened to that? I mean, I understand with it going to the IMO, but what happened to the actual polar code and the possibility of it being a treaty in the 1990s? Thank you. Uh, just, just to go after your, your question that was specifically to me about capabilities perspective and, and whether they're perceived as, as threatening or, or cooperative, I think... Um, I think it's important to, to keep in context that that the United States has not United States military has not developed specific capabilities for the Arctic, specific new capabilities in in decades. You you don't see you don't see a um, new new creation of capabilities or activities that have not been underway for, for many, many years. You know, much has been made in the media of 
of uh, you know submarine transit, for example, but but it's something that's been happening since the 1950s. So I, it, it's sometimes it's a little bit where you where you want to place your emphasis, whether you want to focus on you know a particular event in time or whether you want to look at the the context, um, you know, and the historical record. So I, I don't. Um, where I said it, it doesn't look like a very threatening <coughs> picture, but I can understand how it is being interpreted that way for for those who would look at kind of individual activities. And given the changing global context of looking at the Arctic and, and how the Arctic now looks more more promising and less sleepy than perhaps it, it has been for quite some time. So I think what has changed really is that is that context and how strategic communications are happening. And by strategic communications. That's referring to, to words. It's referring to actions. It's referring to capabilities and how those are perceived. I think the I think the strategic communications context has changed, but the capabilities have not. So, as a federal bureaucrat, I'm going to dodge your question and answer a different one. Uh, but <laughs> I'm going to build on what Amanda said and point out that the uh, the U.S. Uh, Arctic policy does talk about our need to be able to operate independently, uh, and I don't think that that is a slight to cooperation, but I think it's more a recognition that in order to cooperate, we need to be able to cooperate as a full partner rather than as a, a disadvantaged uh, uh, nation who has responsibilities that we cannot independently fulfill. Uh, so uh, I, 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 the sense I get, and uh, this is just speaking uh, from personal observation, is that, that uh, yes, we're very much – in every, every place I go, I think uh, – I know the meetings that Amanda and I have been at have, have focused on, uh, across the federal government, have focused on cooperation and, and working in partnership with other nations. But at the same time, um, uh, we don't want to, to have that be a crutch for not having uh, uh, the ability to independently exercise our sovereign rights and fulfill our sovereign responsibilities. And uh, there are many folks that are concerned that we don't have the ability to do that, that latter. Uh, so, uh, with that, I will. Uh, I know Lawson's much more uh, uh, capable of answering the polar code question than I am, so I'll defer to him. Well, I don't know about capable, but since I was involved in it all at, in the early 90s, I, I think I could answer from my perspective. We might ask the State Department people here, Dave Baltner, or Ray Leonardo, what their perspective is. But in the early 90s, in the opening of the Soviet Union and, and, and a change of, to Russia, our Russian colleagues would meet with maritime administrators and, and uh, experts uh, on icebreaking. And we, we met for six years under the leadership of Canada to produce a practical code that would deal with ship structures for safety and also mariner training and expertise in, in the pilot house and some other issues. And so this, this moved along as a, a bipolar, Antarctic and Arctic code. That's why it's called polar. Uh, because we knew that the ships go both ends of the world, same ships, uh, cruise ships, the Polar Stern, the Polar-class icebreakers, and whoever else. The, op- the ships operate both ends of the world, so you want a seamless, integrated uh, set of rules, uh, non-discriminatory f- for the marine world. But I, but I think as we moved along, there was some concern by, I believe, the United Kingdom and the United States that involving – Maybe this this code was premature, that involving a U.N. agency, IMO, in Antarctic affairs, Antarctica being geopolitically subset of the world with a different 
group of members with different rules that, that maybe it was premature. So I, that, that's really what I could say about it. And so what, what happened was we knew this development in the Arctic. The code continued on IMO as a voluntary code, and it became Arctic guidelines. But now we run full cycle with all the cruise ships in Antarctica. Uh, now uh, I think the Antarctic Treaty countries understand completely that we need international standards, both ends of the world. There might be slight differences between both both ends of the world and the rules, how they apply, but very slight. So I, I think there was just some concern. It was premature in the South, and we were involving a lot of other players in the South who are not Antarctic Treaty members, so it complicated things. But, but maybe we should ask our State Department to folks for their perspective. Hi, uh, Paul Hilda from the Norwegian Institute of Defense Studies. Uh, I have a question to anyone who's willing to take it. Um, the um, U.S. will probably see a sort of a budget squeeze uh, in, the, in the next few years, and, and this brings to sort of the question: How realistic is it to 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 see a sort of a building program for icebreakers? Uh, that's part one of the question, and the second part is then: If that doesn't happen, what does one do? And the Arctic Council and sort of Arctic cooperation in general has seen a lot of cooperation on sort of practical arrangements and common codes, etc. But has been very little capabilities uh, cooperation. And would that be an option the U.S. will be willing to go towards, as in be it Canadian-U.S. cooperation on building icebreakers, or maybe even an Arctic Council cooperation on building ice uh, icebreakers? <laughs> if you want. <laughs> well, I mean, look, Shell is going to drill in, in the offshore in the Chukchi Sea this summer, presumably, unless it gets more complicated with the Gulf and it's tied to the Gulf spill. But, but nonetheless, they're going to drill. And what they're bringing to the United States Arctic is a mod of ships because there's any federal capability, very minimal. There isn't anything to respond. So they bring their own, and we required them to bring their own. An oral foreign flag, which is fascinating. Swedish, Finnish icebreakers, whole armada, second drill ship to drill a, uh, a you know, to drill in case of relief, uh, if they do have a blowout, et cetera. Oil spill response vessel and all of that, it's all brought by Shell. But just the activity itself will require a buildup of some capability. Maybe not polar icebreakers, but I'll bet uh, infrastructure, communications, safety issues, SAR, et cetera, and more attention. So it has to be, for, for the Coast Guard, for Minerals Management Service here in the United States, uh, for some of the other federal agencies, but primarily for the Coast Guard. So I think we'll see more uh, surveillance flights, probably enhance our surveillance and monitoring with satellites and observing networks. may not be polar icebreakers. That's, that's another issue. The question is whether everybody pools their assets around the world and, and the icebreakers are a uh, kind of a common heritage kind of thing. I don't know. I, I, I don't agree. I think it's a specialty vessel, a specialty capability. The United States argues in all the documents from the Defense Department that we actually have capability in the maritime world. And it doesn't say, except the polar world, says the entire planet. Well, in some areas, we just can't take on nuclear submarines. So I, I would suspect sooner or later we'll get around to this icebreaker question, difficult as it is. It's only difficult because 
I mean, we have space shuttles. We have lots of uh, – it's only difficult because they're expensive machines. If we were going on a true polar icebreaker, it's probably a billion dollars, probably a bit more capable than the, the Svalbard, which operates as a law enforcement icebreaking ship around Alaska. So we're, we're talking upscale, real battleship icebreakers, which our, which our Russian colleagues have. But, but I continue to argue that it's not a numbers game. Russia probably needs 12, 15 icebreakers if they want to facilitate traffic and enhance their access to resources and all of that. But, you know, it's a pretty big coastline in Russia, and we need X number. I, I would say that our X number operate both ends of the world, but uh, should operate both ends of the world, but that's another argument. Thanks, Lawson. <laughs> Uh, you're absolutely right. It's going to be a real challenge. Uh, I wouldn't take anything off the table in terms of things that we, that we want to uh, uh, consider and that we're going to explore. Uh, but uh, th they are very uh, capable. And as Lawson indicated earlier, it's not just icebreakers. It's ice-hardened vessels, uh, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, certainly, if you want uh, assured access uh, uh, in, in every area of the world that could be impacted by ice, then you're going to need a, a heavy polar icebreaker. And, and it may well be that we decide we have enough of those, but we need something else that we might be slightly less expensive. We're in, we're in the um, early stages of, of, uh, of looking at that. Um, Senator Murkowski mentioned our high-latitude study, which is actually uh, due out in June of this year. Uh, so she was right it's by, by 2011, uh, but it will be, be out in, in June of this year. And that, that, that's the, the, uh, the first step in looking at, uh, from a Coast Guard DHS point of view, uh, our mission requirements across uh, our, our entire suite of missions, from uh, oil pollution prevention and response to search and rescue to, um, uh, to um, uh, uh, supporting the Department of Defense. So... Um, uh, Certainly, uh, assured access is, is going to be a piece of that. Uh, uh, presence is, uh, uh, and uh, law enforcement is, is going to be a piece of that, but it doesn't always all need, uh, uh, need the, the full up and loaded major, uh, major icebreakers. So it'll be interesting to see what the mix is. But you're right, in a budget-constrained environment, um, this is a new ocean. Uh, you know, this is, like, um, this is like we had all of a sudden discovered we had two new Gulf of Mexico's. Uh, for the United States, and that um, there's stuff out there, and we want to go and get it, and but uh, but we haven't even had the uh, we haven't had much beyond the uh, the initial Native American se uh, settlements uh, along the coastline, uh, and, and uh, so this is going to be very interesting to see how it, it evolves. We already have seen some uh, uh, of what. Uh, uh, Lawson mentioned in, in, in Prudhoe Bay, there's an oil response, oil response um, uh, organization um, uh, that, that, that operates in Prudhoe Bay. Now, they, they have a fleet of vessels, but they're, and they're ice-hardened, but they're no more than 55 feet long. Uh, they're great for Prudhoe Bay. They operate well in shallow water. Uh, um, but uh, as, as the oil and commercial activities move further offshore, uh, naturally that will be one of the first things that that, uh, that they have to bring with them in order to to operate responsibly. So, uh, a lot of a lot of partnerships necessarily, a lot of cooperation, uh, but still in all, there will be a residual piece that uh, I I think that we will find that the, the U.S. government needs to have as as a minimum baseline, and that's going to be our challenge to identify what that is, and then to to actually create that.
Thank you. I'm Andy Garlington. I'm from the uh, Navy staff. I'm in the strategy and policy shop. I'd like to look at this, uh, the capabilities of our infrastructure and the commercial shipping from a slightly different perspective and maybe invite Mr. Carmel to bring his uh, commercial side into this and look at it a different way. Uh, is our lack of infrastructure and response capability actually limiting the commercial activity up there? In other words, if we don't build it, will they not come? I, I would say uh, probably not. Um, from the U.S. perspective anyway, again, the, the activity in the Arctic is all west of, of the Canadian archipelago. It doesn't go all the way through. Um, and, and the oil companies, as we've heard many times, are, are, are quite capable of doing that stuff uh, on their own. Um, so from an extractive industry perspective, uh, which is what the only thing anyone is interested in right now, uh, they're going to do uh, just fine. The lack of infrastructure really uh, uh, pertains to if you want to actually open it as a transit route. Uh, we're not prepared to do that. Um, that said, again, uh, there's still an awful long way to go in terms of, of uh, charting and mapping and, and that sort of thing, emergency response uh, uh, that has to get done to really fully uh, exploit it. And I would also mention that no matter what happens in terms of shipping, uh, at least on the western side, it all goes through the Bering Strait, uh, which is going to require at some point some investment in something along the lines of a vessel traffic control system or, or something along along those lines as well. Well, I mean, it, it does relate to transit management, but uh, I think the, the infrastructure for the United States relates to environmental protection and marine safety. I mean, it's a political will to, to have a safety net to protect the people and the coastline of Alaska. So I, I actually think that not only from a security standpoint, but, but for many other reasons that the infrastructure around Alaska is important. When we conducted the AMSA, we really found out there wasn't much infrastructure in the whole of the Arctic. And this question of charts, and, and even for the Alaskan coast, having adequate charts for the actual numbers of ships we actually have today in the Arctic is, is a huge problem. So what we really, the, the bottom line in the AMSA was that the global maritime industry is in the Arctic today. It's not conducting many transarctic voyages, but it's all over the place in the Arctic, thousands of ships. It's just us not meeting the perspective of many that it's transarctic. And all of those ships and most of the activity, except for maybe the coast of the Norway, northwest Russia, are in areas where there isn't infrastructure today. So the global maritime industry is already in the Arctic. We're well, we, the eight other states, are well behind the power curve in appropriate regulations and safety net. One of the crucial things is the lack of uh, and deficiency in adequate uh, um, infrastructure, however you define it. If I could build on that, I think there's, there's We've kind of hinted at that, this, uh, but uh, I think there's a, a political public relations uh, aspect of this as, as well. Um, the Arctic is a uh, relatively pristine environment. If we were to have uh, oil well blowout uh, up there like we have now in the Gulf of Mexico ongoing, it would be an environmental disaster of the highest order. Um, step down, uh, perhaps just... Uh, a bit from that, uh, if we were to have one of our adventurers uh, go missing uh, or 
if we were to have a cruise ship uh, strike a uh, uncharted rock, um, it would. Yes, we have the search and rescue agreement ongoing right now. Ambassador Bolton is doing a. a, a uh, a, a fine job with that. That doesn't mean we're going to have the ability to reach out and get someone just because we have an agreement, um, because there's very few places to land. Uh, the uh, the ability to, uh, to to aviate and navigate up there is uh, is very restricted. Additionally, the Arctic is a much more dangerous place now than it used to be, because nobody used to go there ever, <laughs> right? So. Uh, and uh, when they did go there, the ice was solid. They could walk on it. They knew exactly where it was. Now when they go there, the ice isn't solid. It goes away. It comes back. It crushes them. Um, so uh, so through a combination of things, um, uh, with increased uh, human interaction, it comes a highly increased uh, 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 risk of uh, something, as I mentioned before, really bad happening, along with all of the uh, the political consequences, good and bad, associated with that. And so uh, for that reason, and because we've seen it before, I really think that we're probably going to be looking in terms of policy and capability at some sort of step function, is that we're going to go along and we're probably going to, you know, incrementally increase our ability. We're going to do the search and rescue agreements, and, and, then, um, and then something bad is going to happen. And uh, it's, it, people will say that the public reaction and the political reaction is going to be way out of proportion to the reality of the actual event. Like that's never happened before. Uh, um, uh, but uh, but it will galvanize us and probably uh, inspire us as a nation to do what we should have been doing all along. Zach Hamilla from uh, the U.S. Navy. I'm a strategic analyst. And this question for Stephen uh, on the issue. You reviewed uh, in very very quickly and in very yet good depth um, all the reasons why there probably won't be a lot of transit shipping and, and things along those lines. I'm curious if you can say anything about, from the industry's perspective, whether or not the legal status of the Northern Sea Route and Northwest Passage impacts your planning and interest in using those sea lanes. And then in addition, if you can say something about the influence uh, of the ins maritime insurance industry on, and whether or not there's support there for uh, Arctic Passage. Thank you. On the Northwest Passage side, um, uh, the, the discussion between the United States and Canada on what the status is uh, doesn't really uh, impact us yet, uh, largely because from a transit perspective anyway, there isn't any. Um, down the road, that may be a different issue. Uh, for the Northern Sea Route, um, it is an issue in that, as you know, Russia exerts sovereignty there, um, enforces uh, its own rules there, and in particular, uh, charges you to go through there. Um, and it's not cheap. Uh, so uh, that is one of the reasons why uh, you know, some people think that, that there hasn't been more transit shipping through uh, the Northern Sea Route than, than has occurred. Um, it is very expensive uh, to go through the Northern Sea Route. Um, so it does impact us a little bit uh, there, um, but only from an economic perspective, not a, a political one. In terms of insurance, um, I, I've actually been through this. Uh, insurance, as you know, is very much a risk model uh, uh, generated business. And, and the risk models simply don't exist 
for for the Arctic yet. There is no lost history up there. Um, we're a long way from understanding what the potential impacts are. Um, you've heard um, several people say what the potential uh, ecological damage would be from from a significant oil spill. Well, you know, from our perspective, that, that translates to what's it going to cost to clean it up, and no one really knows uh, what it's going to cost to clean it up. So, so there's a lot of unknowns. That said, um, uh, on a one-off basis, uh, you can get insurance up there, and I've, I've been through that negotiation with our insurance company. But it is a is a one-off. Um, it's a it's a very structured uh, discussion of of what things are going to look like in terms of the voyage and the potential risk and that sort of thing. So until there's significant experience up there, it'll probably work that way. But you can, in fact, get insurance up there. From my vantage point, I see a lot of work getting ready to prepare lunch for us. So I'd like to ask Heather if... if okay, we, we have time for... John Doyle with the 4G War blog, a freelance journalist. Uh, my question is for Mr. Brigham, although if any of the other panelists have any comment on it. Uh, in your presentation, you mentioned uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. And when Ted Stevens was still in the Senate, he was pushing to have some or part of Alaska uh, created as a testbed for unmanned aircraft because uh, there was so much trouble trying to get um, uh, FAA permission to fly in airspace in the lower 48. I was wondering, uh, in your position in the, as director of the Alaska office, if, if there's anything more in that area, and if this question turns out to be a non-starter, um, are there any other aviation issues uh, affecting the Arctic that haven't been touched on? Well, I, I'll, I work at UAF now at University of Alaska Fairbanks, and it just so happens that we have a fleet of uh, unmanned aircraft, five of them. And the challenge of using them for science and for operations is, is still airspace and getting approval. But, but there is initiative to, to look at that, and they have been used um, principally for science, for for looking at wildlife, for, but, but there are some attempts to use uh, SAR imagers so you could use the vehicle as a search vehicle. So, so I, I think the initiative is, is still there and has promise, not only for science, but for certainly for operations and for surveillance. Uh, what, what was the second part of the question? I, I, Any other uh, aviation Oh, well, a big one. Uh, well, it was an interesting one, a global one, circumpolar one that we found out in the AMSA all of the aviation routes, all of the flights, 100 and some today, that fly over the polar region, the impact of the uh, contrails, the water vapor, the emissions from those aircraft probably have a greater significance of impact, greater impact on the Arctic environment than a handful of ships, a handful meaning hundreds of ships. So when we look at the Arctic, and we, and we do in the Arctic Council try to look at it holistically, I think we're missing one huge industry, and I think we are probably globally. It's the impact on, on the, the cold environment in the troposphere at 30,000 feet of these hundreds of transits, which only came about since the end of the Soviet Union. So it is, it's a different, I don't think that's what you expected my, my answer to be, but we, we learned that, and that needs to be looked at. And when we look at the Arctic, we look at it holistically, not just the marine environment and a bunch of ships, and regulating the heck out of all the shipping companies, which we will anyway, 
uh, how, how about all the aircraft? So I, I think it's a global issue, of course, global transport issue. Yeah, the uh, Coast Guard has been deploying up to the uh, uh, Arctic and northern Alaska uh, over the past several summers. And, uh, of course, we try to conduct uh, awareness flights, uh, patrol flights, as, as we can throughout the year. So some of the practical aviation issues that we've encountered is that uh, the fuel used in our C-130 patrol aircraft turns to gel at minus 41 degrees, which we find very detrimental to its flowing through the <coughs> down to the engines. So uh, as a pilot, I can tell you that's a, that's a bad thing. Uh, so uh, so that's a limit and a challenge that we have to overcome. Also, uh, our, our smaller helicopters uh, don't have anti-icing capability on the blades, and uh, we've found that... Uh, that even in the best of times, uh, it's really not worthwhile bringing those aircraft uh, much further uh, uh, north than uh, than the middle of the, the the Bering Sea. So we have to bring bring our larger uh, our larger helicopters as well. Um, also, places to land tend to be important, and there's a paucity of those uh, in uh, northern Alaska, and uh, as well as refueling opportunities. So again, it's the whole the whole infrastructure uh, problem. We have found that the GPS, at least uh, from an aviation perspective, is relatively reliable uh, up uh, as you get up above 70, uh, but um, uh, it, it does tend to fade out north of, of that simply because of the uh, position of the satellites. So. I'm sure there's more. Thank, thank you. Oh, sure. Please. Do you want them to go? No, that's all right. Thank you. Uh, I'll shoot another question. Um, you mentioned GPS, uh, and, and my, the question goes, um, both from a Coast Guard uh, and Navy perspective, but also from, from a commercial perspective, to, to what extent does the, the sort of challenge when it comes to navigation, to communication, in terms of satellite coverage, uh, you know, ionospheric uh, disturbances, etc., to what degree does that factor in, in when operating in the, uh, in the Arctic, as in both from a commercial perspective and, and from, from a Coast Guard perspective, and what is being done to, to sort of address that, that challenge? I think that speaks to the larger infrastructure issue uh, in, in the high north for all of us, uh, and uh, certainly with respect to uh, communications and navigation, uh, something that uh, we're concerned about. We want it to be as reliable as possible, and so we're looking at that uh, um, that fairly seriously. Um, um, it, it's a challenge. Uh, 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 reliable navigation uh, independent of GPS is, is a challenge uh, not only in the Arctic but everywhere else, and so that's something that we're, we're continuing to look at and trying, trying to get to the bottom of. I would say f from a commercial perspective, it, it, it's probably less of an issue uh, along the Russian coast than it is uh, on the U.S.-Canadian coast, again, just because the Russians have been using their Arctic coast for so long and uh, so extensively. Uh, but it is, a, it, it is certainly an issue uh, in the Canadian and, and uh, U.S. coast. Again, there's just no infrastructure up there. No, and age, lack of age to navigation is, is one of the big uh, issues, as our charts and, uh, of course, age to navigation don't help much if you don't have charts. So, um, so there's all of those things are, are big impediments to our side of the world uh, being a functional place in the Arctic. There isn't uh, complete coverage of ComSat around the top of the world, and ESSA's taken the lead. The European Space Agency, I was at a workshop in November, and they're going to take the lead to put up some more platforms to have complete coverage. There's some huge gaps in the Russian Arctic and 
uh, on the Canadian side and, and, and even in the northern part of Alaska. So I think people are looking at that because they, they, they think that uh, could be operations across the, the central Arctic Ocean by uh, 2030 or so. Well, at this point, I'd like to thank CSIS for bringing this panel together. I think it's, in my experience with Arctic Conference, this is really a unique gathering of expertise of people who actually have their hands on the, the analysis and implementation of policy in the Arctic. Um, and I'd like to thank all of the panelists for their contribution in making time for this event. And, um, and then would like to turn it to Heather to find out what we do next. <laughs> <laughs>